Good day, Brigade. This is Bobby, and we are coming at you today with a political concept of the month. But before we get into that, we're going to be talking a little bit on uh, Governor Florida Man here. As you probably know, Governor Ron DeSantis, a.k.a. Governor Florida Man, seriously, read any news article with his name in it and replacing his name with Florida Man, and it suddenly makes sense. Well, anyway, he has done a couple, quite a few things, not, not a couple, quite a few, that have painted him as an ideological obsessed dumbass. The latest thing we're going to get on, and it actually kind of coincidentally sort of ties into our theme here, is announcing a Victims of Communism Day. Basically, a day that is going to occur on November 7th, I believe, if I remember correctly, in Florida, where students will be compelled to learn about the dark history of a communist regime. And we're talking like Stalin, Pol Pot, and all those other guys. Incidentally, he doesn't mention Ho Chi Minh. So... <laughs> yeah. Anyways, in order to basically kind of counterbalance this to make it more, you know, fair, we're going to be announcing a Victims of McCarthyism Day. And we're going to have it on November 14th. Why November 14th, you might ask? Well, November 14th, 1908, is the day that a man named Joseph McCarthy was born. Who is Joseph McCarthy? He's the guy who basically came up with the idea of McCarthyism, which was be as harsh and brutal as possible to suspected communists, try to out them, and get rid of the communist menace. It was basically a red scare that very few people took super seriously, and unfortunately the people who did went about doing some incredibly horrible things. One example would be Suharto and the destruction of millions of lives by the murder of anywhere from 500,000, this is the conservative estimate, to 2 million people's deaths for being suspected communists. And this was just in Indonesia, mind you. Joseph McCarthy, along with Robert Kennedy, we're going to say that now, Robert Kennedy was involved with this, basically gave them Suharto a list of people they wanted dead, and in addition to Suharto breaking di cracking down on communism in the first place, because, my god, if you want to know a man with some crazy history, read Suharto. And led to the death and upheaval of lives of millions. And no, we don't actually have a confirmed number on that. 500,000 is the lowest estimate. Not to mention, there's also people like Augusto Pinochet, who, while they weren't a part of McCarthyism, used capitalism to their ends to commit horrible atrocities. We'd like to remind people that it is not the ideology itself that commits people to do horrible things, it's horrible people taking advantage of ideas to exploit others. So, that is why we're going to have a Victims of McCarthyism Day, where we will try to bring up and bring to light as many of these atrocities as possible and kind of reinforce the point of it's not so much the ideologies, it's the individuals. 
there is nothing wrong with verbal discourse. And Ron DeSantis is an ideological crazy nightmare, by the way. Anywho, let's get on with the show. So, what is the political concept of the day? Or the month? Today, we're going to be talking about finance capitalism, as we said last week. (laughs) Yay! So, what exactly is finance capitalism? It's the main driving ideology behind most, most of the global economy today, actually. You know, stocks, markets, forex, and all that fun stuff? Yeah, all of that would be dropped into the category of finance capitalism. Yeah, the term itself is credited to Rudolf Hilferding for being brought into prominence with his 1910 study between the links of German, surprisingly the home of economic philosophy it seems, between the links of Germans, banks, trusts, and monopolies before World War I. If you're curious as to what this work was that he did for a study, it was called Der Finanzkapital. I probably butchered that, sorry. But basically this work became the seminal Marxist analysis of the transforming of, quote, liberal capitalism into a more monopolistic, quote, finance capital. So what exactly are we talking about? Well, it's kind of a focus on the intermediary between savings and investment becoming the dominant force and characterized by a predominance of the pursuit of profit from the purchase and sale of or investment in currencies and financial products such as bonds, stocks, futures, and other derivatives like that. In short, it's simply the focus of the pursuit of profit via investing in various financial products. This would include money and interest loans as well. In the Marxist analysis, it's considered exploitive by supplying income to non-laborers, much like how we discussed land speculation works, and proponents such as Eugen von Baum. Work. I butchered the crap out of that, I'm sure. And other proponents see such profits as part of the roundabout process by which it grows and hedges against inevitable risks. So you can see there's a lot of thoughts about this one. The term also covers the significant influence of the wealth holders on the political process and the aims of economic policy. You know, basically the stuff that people like to consider, you know, corruption. So, where did the guy get this idea? Well, Hilferding was writing in the context of Austria-Hungary's more cartel-heavy system of capitalism. He contrasted the more monopolistic finance capitalism to the more competitive, quote, buccaneer liberal era, with the unification of industrial mercantile and banking interests having diffused the earlier liberal capitalist demands for the reduction of the economic role of a mercantilist state basically kind of reducing the need of the role for a more interventionist policy and such so that the state doesn't have to try to protect the financial interests of the capitalists so much. Instead, finance capital seeks to a more centralized and privileged dispensing state, kind of playing favorites on who's who. This is kind of where you get your idea of too big to fail and things like that. Hilferding saw this as part of the inevitable concentration of capital called for by Marxian economics rather than a deviation from the free market. And personally, I'd have to say he's partly right. 
It doesn't really deviate from the free market in regards to it kind of actually tries to exploit the idea. And it is part of the inevitable concentration of capital called for by Marxian economics. In fact, many Marxian economists would agree on this statement. And why would they? Well, this is going to take a bit. But Hilferding saw a lot of this as an alternative route in socialism to socialism in contrast to Marx. Seeing that the quote, socializing, fun socializing function of finance capital facilitates enormously the task of overcoming capitalism. Which, when you really think about it, it does in a way, because it does provide a means of ownership for the common laborer. And for others, in fact. It could actually provide a very easy means to societal control and means of production, if done properly. Once finance capital has brought the most important branches of production under its control, it's enough for society, through its conscious executive organ, the state conquered by the working class, to seize finance capital in order to gain immediate control of these branches of production. That's kind of where he's going with it, basically. In turn, he believes that this would make it unnecessary to expropriate the, quote, peasant farms and small businesses, because they would, in they would be indirectly socialized through the socialization of institutions upon which the finance capital has already made them dependent. Thus, because a, narrow, a narrow class sorry, dominated the economy, socialist revolution would gain wider support by directly expropriating only from that narrow class. In particular, according to Hilferding, societies that had not reached that level of economic maturity anticipated by Marx as making them, quote, ripe for socialism, if you want to know more about this, look up the ideas of dialectical materialism. The idea, the idea of making them ripe for socialism could be open to socialist possibilities. Furthermore, quote, the policy of finance capital is bound to lead towards war, and hence to the unleashing of revolutionary storms. In other words, Hilferding thought that the more increased and centralized role of the banks and such in the role of dominating these economic systems would in turn be expropriated by the working class and such, and while they tried to fund and increase the amount of warfare overall, this would lead to a more revolutionary thought of people trying to break away from the whole notion of it. Keep in mind, he was writing this before World War I. So, it was actually a very common mainstream thing within socialist thought to think that a great war between the imperialist powers would lead to the people overall overthrowing the upper classes and trying to establish a new socialist order. In fact, this was a very common theme up until World War I really saw the dropping of many socialist parties of the goal of revolutionary socialism towards more helping their prospective imperial powers win the war. This was condemned by many true hardcore, hardcore communists as a betrayal of the overall communist ideal, mostly because you're supporting the imperialist state. So this idea overall got subsumed by Lenin and played a big part in shaping his wartime analysis of imperialist relationships between the world's great powers. In analyzing the role of the banks at the time, he concluded that they were, quote, the chief nerve centers of the whole capitalist system of national economy. And I think many of us today would totally agree with that statement. The banks have an increased heavy amount of power and influence over the state as a whole. 
In fact, we even have a nationalized banking system to a degree. I mean, they're definitely pr more private banks, but we still have like an institution of national banks. And that's more of like for investiture and stuff like that. In the traditional Marxist perspective, finance capitalism overall, to summarize, is seen as a dialectical growth in industrial capitalism. Basically, that's where you produce to make profit. And part of the process by which the capitalist phase of history ends. So... There's this thing, and it's kind of an elephant in the room we're going to be addressing now. There's this notion in the American Union and many, many Western societies that seem to think that the idea of communism is to force such a system. In reality, however, communism sees its revolution as part of a natural progression. The idea of violent revolution would ultimately be a part of this natural progression of what they consider human history. So this kind of goes back into dialectical materialism and a historiographic way to see the world. Marx believed in very heavily that the world struggle centered around this concept known as conflict theory, in which various classes of people have always struggled against each other. In particular, he refers to the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. If you want a more detailed explanation of Marxism and all that, we do actually have an episode on political concept of the month in the first season about Marxism. I'd recommend checking it out because we do cover a bit of it, though I'd also recommend going to other sources as well because we can never truly, on our own, do these ideas justice. We'd like to point that out now. <laughs> so the reality of it is, it kind of sees itself as just another phase in the history. As capitalism dies and revolution grows, communism will supplant the idea of the old ways and move forward. That's more or less how communism sees itself within the context of dialectical materialism. So, as many people see it, they see communism as this menace that's trying to take over the world, which is eh, kind of true, kind of not. You definitely have people who want to exploit the ideas of communism and socialism so that they can enforce a revolution and take control. And this often leads to those very authoritarian regimes that you come about. But then, they're, then the homage they pay to the ideology, more often than not, becomes more of a lip service. Now, I will give that Stalin in particular seems to be an interesting exception, as Stalinism itself is a particular branch off of the traditional Marxist-Leninist system. And it kind of contrasts against Trotskyism and does realistically introduce some new concepts. Now... This actually is pretty natural to the general idea of communism, in which, as we go back, a central idea of the historiographic role is dialectical materialism. And this, in fact, plays into the ideology itself, too. In fact, we're seeing in the modern day many people turning to change the definition and idea of what socialism is, and trying to find other means that are far more peaceful and far more viable. In fact, trying to incorporate even more capitalistic elements and trying to create Arguably a third intermediary system. It's kind of fascinating to see how that all works. So, to the Marxists, this form of capitalism, going back to finance capitalism, is that which is most commonly referred to as late-stage capitalism. 
this is kind of seen as that end phase overall where capitalism is going to basically come about its final end as everything gets controlled by banks, financial institutions, and the very few wealthy that hold everything. And the working class is just like, all right, enough of this shit. And this is where we start to get coined terms like the dictatorship of finance capital and the dictatorship of the proletariat. Now, again, these are kind of misnomers, as we've discussed previously, in that dictatorship isn't referring to an authoritarian idea. It's referring to the working class as a whole reigning over these concepts. The dictatorship of the proletariat is their di- they rule over the state. The worker is greater than the state. And similar dictatorship of finance capital is the worker should preside and rule over the capital. In this case, capital being, well, money used to, pr- to facilitate production. In fact, we can go into a whole thing about capital. My God. Now, it's kind of interesting how this alternative route going back to uh, Hilferding's ideas, how this alternative route would work. Because if you think for a minute, what he's advocating is kind of a slow takeover of these institutions through the proletariat. Now, it does kind of touch a little bit on our ideas of economic democracy, in which the people would be running cooperatives and such. Another thing to note is, before the Russian Revolution, and before the Second International, There was a big, big, big gap between socialist thought that had to be bridged. And that is the contrast between syndicalism and a more centralized statism. Under syndicalism, this is where we're basically talking workers would directly own the means of production and such. This would be where we get our cooperative economics and things like that. The syndicalists favor a much more decentralized idea, and thus a greater, faster dissolution of a centralized state. Believe it or not, communism's final goal is to create a stateless society. Yeah, you probably didn't get that. So, why you probably didn't get that is the other side of the argument. The more centralized statist model. And this is the model that really prevailed. Now, during the Second International, there was a lot of stuff that happened, and that's kind of what led to this whole split between the libertarians and more authoritarians, in which many, many, many people were kicked out of the Second International, forming the Second and a Half International. Among these included revolutionary thinkers such as Rosa Luxemburg. Now... These authoritarian, more status people believe that there should be a more state-controlled model to the means of production. If the workers were to control the state, as we are talking about here, with a dictatorship of the proletariat, then in turn, having state control the means of production would translate to an indirect control by the people of the means of production. Now, this presents an interesting thought. You could argue that this in itself is a means to achieving communism. But you have to question one thing in particular. 
where does the stateless transition happen? Because as it stands, the state still exists, but serves as a vehicle by which the workers control the means of production, or rather the proletariat. But it still insists on the idea of a state. Now don't get me wrong, we're long since past these ideas. We're moved on to a more geoist syndicalist approach. So we would like to point out that yes, we would definitely side with the syndicalists. But it presents an interesting series of questions and where the idea of the Leninist thought would go. Now let's keep this in mind. Trotsky, as well as Stalin, were both on the more statist side. Their issues of difference was between socialism in one state and the idea of permanent revolution. That's where they fell. Other thinkers like Rosa Luxemburg and more of the German socialists and Western socialists fell along the side of syndicalism. And honestly, if you're looking to achieve a true goal of communism and develop an economic model that might actually be more successful than a command economy, syndicalism is not a bad way to look, especially with an emphasis on cooperative economics over cartels or other things. Why? Because cooperative economics actually has a point of proof. In many studies, in fact, I believe British, can't remember what specifically they're called. Oh, London School of Economics, I believe, actually did a study and found that cooperatives tend to be more successful in their first five years than other means of owning a business, running a business. This includes private businesses, legal, limited, limited liability corporations, and the like. So, as you can kind of guess, we're kind of pushing cooperatives again. But we argue it more as a point of contention and possibly that next step between finance capitalism and the dialectical step of socialism. Now, we're not saying we wanted to push forward towards a totally socialist state. Though in reality, we'd have to have a long conversation with ourselves to figure out whether or not that's exactly what we believe in. I mean, we definitely believe in a more geoist model of economy, and we definitely emphasize the idea of cooperative economics. The question is, does that count as socialist? Anyways, we're getting a little bit off topic here. But to sum up our overall ideas, finance capitalism is a system that basically favors investing within various financial products in the pursuit of profit through such means. The phrase was originally one used by Marxist anal analysts to describe a final phase in the capitalist system that some would believe, to, believe would lead to a natural transition into socialism. Again, keep in mind, there is still the possibility of violent revolution, but they're saying violent revolution as an inevitability, not so much as an enforced means. Well, that's not entirely correct. There are people who do believe that the revolution should in fact be pushed. However, there are other people who believe the revolution is just more of a natural process. And the last thing we learn is the predominant economic system within the world today, usually presenting itself, weirdly enough, through neoliberalism. 
So, if you made it this far, congratulations. Thanks for listening. If you love it, share it. If you hate it, share it. Regardless, just share us, because we like to get out there and hope that people hear an opinion more and give their own thoughts and take these thoughts into consideration. Anyways, thanks again for listening, and those who wish not to be tread on should mind where they step. Have a great night and a pleasant tomorrow.